morning. Please find your way in God's Word to Mark chapter 15 as we continue our walk through this letter. <coughs> Last week we looked at the death of Jesus and we did see that Jesus paid it all and to all to him we owe. If you missed that sermon, it is online. I would suggest to go listen to it. There's some great truths there. We saw many truths that came out last week in the, in the death of Christ. We saw how we can take comfort in knowing that God is in control of it all. Not, not just one little event or here and there every now and then or just some things. No, God is in control of it all. We saw how he had planned his own funeral. He had planned his own death. I don't know many people that can do that. But we did see through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God accomplishes exactly what he plans, purposes, promises, prophesies, and he does it without interrupting, without suspending, without overturning the natural course of things. That is an amazing God. Amen? He does it by pulling together and orchestrating all the free behaviors of all people, all contingencies, all events, all actions, and all reactions. And that's why we can say God uses all things to the good of those who love him, as we are told in Romans 8, 28. We also talked about how Jesus paid the price for sin for all of mankind, and, and, and that brought up some conversations after church last Sunday. We were talking about how the Word of God actually puts limits on who can be the Savior of the world. It limits who can be the Messiah. You see, each prophecy that was written about the Messiah, each word that was written in Scripture about the Savior that God had promised to send, eliminated a lot of people who otherwise would have claimed to be the Messiah. What, what would happen to the Messiah, what the, when the events would take place, how it would happen, what would be said, puts limits on who could actually qualify to be the Savior that God had promised to send. Each prophecy that we read about in the Old Testament narrows the field for the one who would be eligible to be the Savior. Each prophecy makes that window a little bit smaller each time. So if you're going to proclaim to be God, if you're going to proclaim that you are the Son of God, you're going to have, if you're going to proclaim to be the Savior, you have a lot of prophecy to fulfill. Now, if we were to put all these prophecies together... It would bring it down to one man who could fulfill them all. And that one man is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The, one, Amen. the one that has all the qualifications. Now, he is the one. There is one act, though. There is one act that separates Jesus from anyone else. Anyone else who would claim to be the Savior, there is one act that he did that they're going to have a tough time doing, and that's being able to take the punishment for sin, being able to take the wrath of God, to, to take the wrath that God has towards sin. You see, God tells us that in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the problem is with sin is that it separates us from God. Sin causes a division between us and the holy God, and we need to be made right. We all know that. We all know that we need to be forgiven of our sins. Now, how can that happen? What can we do as a sinner? What, what can we do to be, to, make, to be made right with God? In other words, how do we pay the penalty for our sins? You may be asking, what is the penalty? 
Well, we know that the penalty set in Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. This death spoken of here because of sin does not necessarily result in physical death right away. So you don't die as soon as you sin. If that were true, then we'd all be dead, right? There'd be one person at church today, Pastor Jared. Just kidding. He's a good guy, but he's not perfect. Good guy. Listen, the scriptures are referring to the, the uh, spiritual death. So when the day comes, when you stand before God, you'll stand before him guilty of sin. You will be guilty because all have sinned. And the price, the punishment, the wages of sin is eternal death. That means that you will spend eternity separated from God. You will spend eternity in darkness suffering the wrath of God for your sin. That's making the payment for your sin. So when we read Romans 6.23, it should strike our hearts when we hear for the wages of sin is death as we contemplate what it is. That should be an earth-shaking moment for everyone who hears it as you think about what that statement actually means. So, so what is sinful man, who is everyone who has sinned, what, what are we to do? How are we to rescue, how are we rescued from the ultimate spiritual death? How is that penalty paid? We are read it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And, and that brings us right back to our Savior that we've been studying here in the book of Mark all the way through. The one who can pay the price for our sins. How, how is that he's qualified? Well, first of all, we know that Jesus was able to do that because he himself is sinless and holy. Jesus was sinless because of his virgin birth. We learned that in the Christmas message. But because of that supernatural act, that virgin birth, Jesus did not inherit the sin nature that everyone else has. We're all sinners. Jesus is not. He does not owe for his sin because he never committed any sin. But because of that supernatural act that God did, Jesus, the Son of God, was able to provide salvation for whosoever would believe. Jesus, the Son of God, was able to pay the price for all, Jesus, the Son of God, was able to pay the wages of sin for all because he was God. And we saw that last week, the exact time that the wages of sin was paid in full. It was in that darkness, that day that Jesus hung on the cross, that God, in full judgment vengeance, God, in full judgment fury, poured out his wrath for sin on Jesus, the Son of God. It was an infinite wrath that he poured out, moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite son who can absorb all the tortures of eternity of hell and do it in three hours. How amazing is our God? This is where we see the great one, the king of kings, who was qualified to be our savior. It is there in those three hours that Jesus bore in his body our sins. It was in those three hours that the Son of God was made sin for us. It had to be God who would provide salvation. It had to be God that saved us from the penalty of sin. It had to be God. He's the only one that could take it. It had to be the Son of God, the only one who's qualified to satisfy the debt that could be paid. We could never pay that debt. 
The only way to do it is spend eternity suffering God's wrath. Jesus could receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath because he is an infinite and eternal person. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God. His capacity for everything is limitless and eternal because he is God. Amen? And that's why only he, only Jesus, can be the Savior of the world. So as you see, as you can see, Christ paid in full the punishment, the penalty for sin for all who would believe, for all who would put their trust in Jesus, for all who would put their faith in Christ. You, know, you hear that statement all the time. You know, just put, you put your faith in Jesus and you'll be saved. You know, put, put your trust in Jesus and you'll be saved from the wrath of God because of your sin. Well, what, what does that actually mean? You hear it, people say it all the time. What does that mean? Well, it's this. When a person has faith in Jesus, it means that he or she believes who Jesus is. That is God in human form. And trust that Jesus has done, what, uh, trust what Jesus has done, died and was resurrected. You trust that Jesus has paid the wages <coughs> of sin. He conquered death. So you put all that together, and, th and that's how you have saving faith. That is, you trust in the person and the work of Christ for your salvation. You have put your faith in Jesus that he has paid it all. So that's what it means to have Put your faith in Christ and be saved. Put trust in Christ and you'll be saved. Moving on, down to verse 37 here in chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in, the, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So officially, we saw last week, officially at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that Friday in April in the year A.D. 30, the old covenant was abolished. At that moment, when Christ died, the penalty for sin had been paid in full, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, and at that moment, the temple was nullified. The priesthood was voided. All sacrifices became pointless because the only true and saving sacrifice had been offered to God, and it was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. When Christ died, the way into the presence of God became wide open for anyone. Anyone who has put their trust in Jesus can go directly to the throne of God. So the whole system, the whole religious system at that moment became null and void. It was at that moment in verse 39 that the centurion who was facing him said, truly, this man is the son of God. And I pointed out last week, this is the climax of this letter because this is how the letter began. Mark in chapter one said, beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's how Mark began this letter and he, he arrives here at the end. And what does a centurion soldier say? This man was the son of God. So important to know that truth. You have to know that. If you don't understand that Jesus was the Son of God, then you can't understand how he was able to pay the price for our sins. You've got to put those together. Watch this. I know that uh, what chapter 1 and verse 14 says. Now, you've heard this almost every sermon that we preached on this letter. The reason for this letter, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying what? The time is fulfilled. 
and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we've talked about this. Who is the kingdom of God? It's all the nations. It's all the people. The kingdom of God is made up of all who would repent. That is, turn from whatever they're trusting in and believing in the gospel message and putting their trust in Christ. Now, who does Paul say that the kingdom of God is? Who does he say it is? Galatians 3.28. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So we are all equal in the kingdom of God. We are all one. Salvation is for all, for whoever will believe. For everyone who will believe. Now what do we see right here at the death of Jesus? Right at the death of Jesus, what do we see? We have a centurion soldier, a Roman soldier, hated by the Jews. A Gentile, that is anyone that's not a Jew, a Gentile, proclaiming, he's the first one, proclaiming that this man, that Jesus Christ, is indeed the Son of God. That's a big statement. That's huge. You know, th this is what the religious leaders should have been proclaiming the entire time, especially after they had seen all the miracles, especially after they had seen they, they have heard all the teaching from Jesus, especially after they had checked the scriptures to see if what Jesus taught was truth, especially after they had seen him fulfill prophecy after prophecy that gave evidence that he was the Messiah. They were the ones who should have been proclaiming that this man is indeed the Son of God, not some Roman soldier. You know, this soldier may not have known the scriptures, but he knew enough. He knew enough that he could publicly proclaim that Jesus was the God-man. I'm not sure if he knew the depths of his statement, but it was deep. One that many never get. Many never understand that Jesus was fully man and Jesus was fully God. This man got it. This man is the son of God, he said. I'm not sure if this soldier got saved. I'm sure it doesn't say. But I do know this. 1 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So in, in my mind, I, I can't help but think that how this soldier, with that much light revealed to him, I mean, he came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God, how he just walked away from that and never pursued it any further. You know, comes home. Hi, honey. How was work today? Well, crucified the Son of God. No big deal. What's for dinner? I can't see that happening. He saw how Christ died, and he said, he is truly, indeed, the Son of God. I feel what he proclaimed was from the heart. It was not taught. This, this guy saw what happened. He knew what had gone on all week, if not more. 
He may not have understood it all as he looked up at the Son of God dead on the cross. But I feel, you know, for sure he proceeded to move on seeking that light that he was given. Maybe he was there when Peter gave the sermon on Pentecost. We don't know. We don't know for sure. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven and we meet this guy and say, hey, you're that soldier. We read about you in scripture. We preached about you. Here's a thought. If there's ever something you'd want to be known for, if there's ever something that ever came out of your mouth that you'd like to be known for, that would be it right there. <laughs> Think about it. It's a couple thousand years we're still talking about what this one statement this guy said. He was proclaiming exactly what Jesus proclaimed. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Let's look at the burial of Jesus, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have, hear that he should have already died and summoned the centurion. He asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to jo Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb and, that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a, stone away, uh, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of jo Joseph, saw where he was laid. So we have the death of Jesus, and now we've come to the burial of Jesus. And just remember, as, you, as we read that right there, as we see that you know, they're, they're surprised about the death of Christ, remember what Jesus had said about his life. Write this verse in your margins, John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So important to know this about the death of Christ. He is in control of his life and his death and his resurrection. No one crucified him. They, they hung him on the cross, but they didn't kill him. Jesus gave up his spirit to the Father. You know, as a matter of fact, when Jesus gave up his life, the two thieves who were on the cross beside him, one on each side, they were still alive. But Jesus was dead. John tells us in chapter 19 that the soldiers came to break the legs of the first, of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. You know, why did they come out to break the legs of those men that were hanging on the cross? They were looking to break Jesus' legs and the two thieves because they wanted to speed up their death. They were still alive. But when they came to Jesus, they, they didn't break his leg because he was already dead. He was already dead. People could live on the cross for two to three days. I found that amazing. You know, they push up with their feet, take a breath, and come back down. When they break the legs, they can't push up anymore. So they speed up the death. They wanted to go ahead and get it over with. They would break the legs. They wanted to do that here. The Jews 
wanted Jesus dead and to be taken down because the Passover celebration was at hand. Can't mess that up for us. You know, it was the day of preparation, our text tells us. That's Friday. They didn't want the bodies on the cross during the Sabbath. That's Saturday. Why did, why did, they, why did they want that? Because that, they didn't want to break God's law. If you read in Deuteronomy 21, if one has been executed, you've got to take them away and, and uh, bury them. They particularly didn't want it on the day of the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, wanted the three dead bodies down before the Passover Sabbath. They did not want those bodies to defile their Sabbath. The Sanhedrin had a buffet of defilement laws, meaning they would pick and choose which one they obeyed. Nothing new under the sun. Hey, you remember they wouldn't go in Pilate's, uh, uh, they wouldn't go up to Pilate because they didn't want to go inside uh, the uh, praetorium there. They didn't want to go in there. They would make them unclean, not able to participate in the Sabbath and the Passover. They wouldn't do that, but yet lying, starting a mock trial, killing the Son of God. That's okay. But, you know, stepping foot on Gentile property, whoa, that's pretty bad news right there. Very selective on which laws they would obey. Now, it's not here in Mark, but when the soldiers went out to break the legs, they came to Jesus, and they saw that he was already dead. So he's already dead. John tells us that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and he was just making absolutely certain that Jesus was dead. And immediately, blood and water came out. Now, the medical world tells us that under certain stressful circumstances, the heart can actually burst causing blood to spill into the pericardium and mix with the lymphatic fluid there. And this is what happened to Christ. Jesus literally willed his own heart to burst. And if you think about what he endured as the wrath of God was poured out on him for every sin ever committed, you could see how that could happen. Psalm 69, 20 says, Reproach has broken my heart or ruptured my heart. And, you know, John wanted to make sure we understood that truth. He tells us, hey, look, I'm an eyewitness. I'm telling you the truth. With my, I, I saw it with my own eyes. Jesus was on the cross. He was dead. They didn't break his legs. They put a spear in his side. Don't miss this. Let me read it. John 19, 33 through 37. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, here's John talking, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. That's why John wrote these things. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And another scripture says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. So important to know. You know, the first scripture was Psalm 34, 20, which says not a bone of him shall be broken. Why is this important? Why did they not break a bone? What is Jesus? He's the Passover lamb. 
A Passover lamb cannot have a broken limb. You, you can't bring God a lame sacrifice. You, you bring him the best. You bring him a spotless lamb without blemish. You couldn't offer God a, a lamb with a broken limb. Won't accept it. Jesus was the perfect lamb of God. Not a bone was broken. Now, I know some of you young guys here are going, hey, wait a minute. When we do the Lord's Supper, it says that Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You're telling me no bone was broken. His heart may have been broken, but no bone. No bone. Many translations says, this is my body, which is for you, meaning that Christ said, I gave it all for you. Everything about my being, I gave for you. But there were no bones broken. Good catch, guys. Good catch. Now, being pierced in the side fulfilled Zechariah 12.10. They looked on him whom they have pierced, which is to say that the Messiah would also be pierced. That's a big prophecy that limits who could the Messiah could be. Try to plan that one out. Just saying. So why all the details about the death of Christ? It's to make sure that we know that we know that Christ died before he should have, meaning that Christ died in his timing, not man's. The word gives us confirmation from different sources so that we know that we know that Jesus indeed was dead and it was him who gave up his spirit. So there wouldn't be any doubt that he is the Messiah. And, and know this too. You know, the soldiers knew a dead body when they saw one. They were executioners. They were professionals at this. This is what they did for a living. And they saw that Jesus had gave up his spirit. Man didn't take it. We know that Jesus had died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And in verse 47, when the evening had come, that is late afternoon, they wanted the bodies down before the Sabbath because Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday. And, and there, here we have Joseph of Arimathea, you know, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to the Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And as you read this, you'd be going, oh, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what, who is this guy? Who is Joseph of Arimathea? The word says that he's a prominent member of the council. That means that Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. This is a big deal. This is a very big deal. So big that he's mentioned in all four Gospels. Matthew, Luke, John, and Mark all tell about Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin. What we have here with Joseph is a story of salvation of a member of the religious elite. He was a true believer. Matthew says Joseph, a disciple of Jesus. John says Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Now, he may have feared the Jews, but that did not stop him from seeking the truth. And I love this. It says in verse 43, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was seeking it. He didn't want to miss it. He, he was one who studied the scriptures. 
He knew what to look for when it came to who would qualify to be the Messiah. And because of his knowledge of the word, because of what he had heard Jesus teach and what he had seen Jesus do, he came to the conclusion that the kingdom of God had come, that the king had arrived. I'm sure Joseph was excited the day when Jesus rode into town on a donkey and then he hears the truth being preached in the temple. I bet Joseph, he was beside himself. The kingdom of God has finally come. But I was wondering what Joseph was thinking as the Passion Week progressed. Did he know enough of the scriptures to put all of this together? Did he understand that it must happen this way, as Jesus had said? I'm not sure if he really truly understood all that at at that time. But we do know this. He loved Jesus. He truly loved the King of Kings. How do we know this? He was willing to put his life on the line by giving Jesus a decent burial. He was willing to give it all up by publicly showing his love for Jesus. After he came and asked for the body, I'm sure he lost his position at the Sanhedrin. He was done. I'm sure he was put out by the religious leaders. But none of that mattered to Joseph. He loved the Lord, so much so that he was willing to publicly acknowledge that he has been a disciple of Jesus Christ. Think about that. He, he, could, have, he could have been silent. He went, learned at night in secret, listened to Jesus. He could, have, he could have not said a word. He could have just let it all played out. But his heart wouldn't let him do that. His love for Jesus was too strong. I'm thinking that Jesus, that Joseph looked around at Jesus on the cross and maybe asked, where are all the people that love Jesus? Where are all the people that were praising him just a few days ago? Where's all the people that he healed? They all fled. John was there taking care of Mary group of women were there there was nothing they could do so Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and it took a lot of courage to do what Joseph did I'm looking at myself like how many times have I not spoken up for Jesus because of fear you know how many times have I not taken a stand for Jesus because I was scared of what people might think I'm sure what I went through is nothing compared to the stand that Joseph made. He had found the kingdom of God, and he did not care what people thought about him. He did not care what it would cost him. He was ready to give it all up because he had found life's true riches in the Son of God. Amen? So Pilate, he grants Joseph permission to take the body. After he sends the soldiers out to make sure that Jesus was dead, he was surprised that he was dead already, but he granted the body to Joseph. Another way, that's another way that we know Joseph was willing to give it all up and follow Jesus. And that is that not only did he publicly proclaim that he was a disciple of Jesus, but watch this. He goes out to the crucifixion site. He takes Christ down from the cross. He pulls the nails out takes the crown of thorns off. 
and he begins to wrap the body in the spices and linen. Why is that a big deal? Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, he's a devout Jew. He just exposed himself to a dead person. Joseph just defiled himself. He would have been declared unclean. He could not have partaken in any of the Passover celebrations. But none of that mattered to Joseph. He knew he had been cleaned by the king of kings. He knew that it was not the religious rituals that made him clean. He knew that it was not his works that made him clean. His faith was in the son of God. His faith was in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. That's how we know that Joseph was willing to give it all up. Joseph knew he was made clean by Christ. Amen. Now, Joseph may not have known it at that time, but because of his love and respect for Jesus, he was willing to give his own tomb to Jesus, an unused tomb, it says. And by placing Jesus in an unused tomb, he was actually giving Jesus a burial like a king. You may be asking, you know, well, what's an unused tomb? Well, back then, tombs were uh, hewn out of rocks, and inside they would have shelves down the sides of the wall. And uh, they were used again and again. You know, they, they would put the body in there on the shelf. When it decomposed down to the bones, they would collect the bones and put them, put them in a box called an ossuary. ossuary. Uh, you may have heard that on the news. You know, the archaeologists will dig one up and they'll find one. They, we found the ossuary of such and such, you know. Basically, they have a box of bones. That's what that is. But they would remove the bones, put the next person on the shelf. They would use it again and again. But this shows the providence of God as we see, uh, as we see the love that Joseph had for Jesus. As we see the respect for that Joseph had for Jesus, it was out of that love and respect that Joseph was fulfilling God's will. You remember Isaiah 53, that should be marked in your Bibles. It says that the one who was bruised for our iniquities, the one who was led, to the sheep, led as a sheep to the slaughter, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says his grave was planned to be with the wicked. That was the, that was the world's plan for the burial of Jesus. See, Jesus would have been thrown in the fires in the dump like the rest of the criminals if it were not for Joseph. But because of the love that Joseph had for Jesus, his grave turned out to be with the rich, just as Isaiah said it would be. Joseph didn't know it, maybe didn't know it at the time, but he was doing God's will to provide a burial for Christ. I love to see the providence of God. Not only, not only was Joseph fulfilling Isaiah 53, but he was fulfilling the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 40, that the Son of Man will be three days, three nights in the grave. So a day and a night is simply a Jewish way to, prefer to, to refer to any part of a 24-hour period. So Jesus had to be buried before the Sabbath began at sundown. So Jesus had to be in the, in the grave Friday before sundown. And by giving his Savior a proper burial, he fulfilled that prophecy. And Joseph begins to prepare the body for burial. He wrapped the body in linen along with spices. 
No embalming back then, just wrap the body. When you think about it, that'd be tough for one man to do, right? Wrap a body, a dead body with spices, then move it to the tomb of a rich man. That would be tough. Good news. He didn't do it alone. Listen to John chapter 19, verse 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took, it aw took away his body. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spice, as, a, as, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Did you see that? Nicodemus was there. You remember Nick at night? He's the one who came to Jesus by night and had, had the discussion about being born again. He was there at the death of Christ. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. You know, that's, that's a burial fit for a king right there. Nicodemus was of the kingdom of God. He understood what Jesus meant when he said to be born again. He had put his faith and trust in Jesus. So the two of them prepared the, prepared the body, and they laid it in the tomb. And a stone was rolled over the entrance of the tomb. Just the two of them. Out of love for Jesus, these two members of the Sanhedrin gave Jesus the most honorable burial they could offer. You, you, you would have thought that there would have been a grander funeral and burial for the one who had healed so many. Of the one who came and taught a message of love. But it wasn't. Only two men came to his funeral. No hymn was sung. No sermon was preached. He was placed in the grave and the stone was rolled across the entrance. Sad funeral for the one and only true king of kings. But we can rejoice. We can rejoice because it is through the death and burial of Jesus that we see the kingdom of God. We see the kingdom of God at hand. We have the thief on the cross who is of the kingdom of God. We have a Roman soldier proclaiming that Jesus, this man, is indeed the son of God. We have two members of the Sanhedrin, two members of the Jewish religious establishment, who walked away from it all to follow Jesus. We have the women who were followers of Jesus from the beginning who never left them. We can clearly see that the kingdom of God was definitely at hand at the death and burial of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask ourselves. We have to do that self-examination. Am I of the kingdom of God? Are we like the thief who is willing to recognize that Jesus is the sinless Savior? Are we like the Roman soldier who is willing to proclaim publicly that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God? 
Are we like the two members of the Sanhedrin who are willing to walk away from the kingdom of this world to be a part of the kingdom of God and give Jesus the honor and praise that he deserves? You know, it's because of the providence of God that you are here today to hear this message. So the question is, what do you do with what God has said? Do you believe in Christ, the Son of God? Do you put your faith and trust in Jesus and become a part of the kingdom of God? Or do you reject the free gift of salvation that Jesus is offering? God is asking you that today. Search your hearts. Examine your hearts. It's in your hands. Amen? Pastor Druid.